everybody. It's lovely to see you all. Well, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. So that's where we're going. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are also many nations gathered here this morning around your word. And Lord, we come with different needs all grappling with different pressures and problems. And we ask that you would have mercy on us and that you would speak to each one of us at our point of need. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, do please have your Bible open. Have the white bulletin open in front of you with the outline. I think you'll find that will be helpful. If you ask God to rescue you, will he do it? Uh, I think it's hard to think of a more important question. You're ill and you pray. You lose your job and you pray. You struggle with depression and you pray. Someone you love dies and you pray. You pray to be rescued from sickness. You pray to be rescued from poverty, misery, sadness and death. And when you do that, when you cry out from your heart to God, will he rescue you? Um, Experience teaches us that God doesn't always do that. Uh, Millions have prayed when they were sick and they've stayed sick. Uh, Thousands have prayed when they were out of work and they've stayed out of work. Uh, The world, of course, is full of people with uh, psychiatric misery. Uh, They've prayed, but they've remained troubled. Plenty have prayed not to die, but all have died eventually. And so the question is, will God rescue you in the end, even beyond death? And of course the Bible says that if you turn from your sin and you trust in his Son, the Lord Jesus, who died for the sins of the whole world, that God will rescue you in the end from sickness, poverty, misery, sadness and death. That's what the Bible says. But is it true? Is it true? It's a really important question. Now, as you know, we're in a series in the book of Judges at the moment which records the history of the people of God between the conquest of Canaan and the time when they began to have kings. It was a chaotic time when God's people were constantly backsliding, uh, then suffering God's painful discipline before eventually being rescued by a leader or a judge. And uh, chapters 6 to 8 tell us about one particular judge, a man called Gideon. Now, if you go to your local library and you take out a history book, I can absolutely guarantee you Gideon is not in it. 
The people who write books about world history aren't remotely interested in Gideon, so why on earth are we studying it? And the answer is that in this strange and apparently insignificant little story, we find the seeds of a much bigger story of which you and I are part. And if we look very carefully at the story of Gideon, it will help us understand that much bigger story. It'll help us to see what God is doing today and where you and I fit in. Now last week we saw that uh, in this story, which began in chapter 6, the people of God suffered the most intense humiliation. They were oppressed by the Midianites and various other tribes. Uh, Their misery was extreme. And in verse 6 of chapter 6, we saw that they cried out to the Lord for help. In other words, they prayed. And God began to answer their prayer by preparing Gideon for leadership. And we saw that it was an extremely thorough preparation in which God gave Gideon a promise, a sign, a test, and a special endowment of the Holy Spirit. And so at the end of the chapter, uh, we were expecting the battle to get underway and the Midianites to be thoroughly defeated. But instead, there is a surprising delay. Yes, God has prepared Gideon for leadership, but so far there's been no rescue. The nearest we actually get to a rescue in chapter 6 is in verses 33 to 35, where Gideon blew the trumpet to summon his own tribe and the other tribes to follow him. And we think, okay, terrific. The rescue is about to happen. But it didn't. Instead, the the next thing that happens is that Gideon has a moment of doubt, putting God to the test with his famous fleece. And so we find ourselves asking, well, is God actually going to rescue his people? When's he going to do it? How is he going to do it? And you and I need to know, because although we're not oppressed by the Midianites, we do suffer all the pressures of life in a world that has turned its back on God. And so we need to know, when we cry out to the Lord for help, will he rescue? And if he will, how's he going to do it? And uh, as chapter 7 begins, it does look, doesn't it, as if the rescue is about to get underway. Uh, Gideon and all his men are camped at the spring of Harod and uh, the camp of Midian is just north of them in the valley and we assume the battle is about to begin, but it doesn't. Because before we get to the battle, we've got two rather strange and unexpected incidents. Uh, And the first, in verses 1 to 8, reveals the necessity of weakness, the necessity of it. So there's the Midianite camp just north of them and in verse 2 we read, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now nobody was expecting that. We've already been told, haven't we, in chapter 6 
that the Midianites and the other tribes are spread over the whole land of Canaan like locusts. There are so many you can't count them. So we might expect God to say to Gideon, you haven't got enough men. You need a bigger army. Instead of which we have this extraordinary scene where God says to Gideon, you've got too many men, I can't let you win with such a big army. Why not? Verse 2, because Israel might boast against me that her own strength saved her. Now verse 2 is the key to what follows. It's actually the key that explains the rest of the chapter. God says you would boast and boasting is catastrophic. And the reason that boasting is catastrophic is because when I boast of my strength and my ability or my cleverness or whatever it might be and you boast about your strength and all your marvellous achievements, instead of there being love and harmony, there will be conflict. And when there's conflict among the people of God, God is dishonoured. The world actually disintegrates when human beings boast. And God says, if you boast, well, you're going to be just like the Midianites and the Amalekites and everybody else. So it's very important that you don't boast And here's what I'm going to do to stop you boasting. And then in the story, there's kind of a a two-stage thinning process. And uh, in verse 3, the first thinning gets underway. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now that means, to begin with, that Gideon had a pretty decent-sized army, didn't he? He had 32,000 people. And now, two-thirds of them confessed to being cowards. I mean, the conversations must have been rather bizarre, don't you think? Uh, One soldier says to his friend, what are you going to do about this? And uh, the friend says, well, you know, I've never really enjoyed fighting. A bit of a homeboy myself. Uh, I think I'm going to go home. Perhaps it was something like that. Anyway, two-thirds of the army go home, 10,000 men stay behind, and we think, poor Gideon. I mean, that must have been frightfully discouraging. But then the Lord says in verse 4, there are still too many. So we need a second stage sinning. And the second stage is just really, really strange, isn't it? The Lord says to Gideon, take them down to the water and I'm going to thin them out for you there. It's very hard to tell quite how this thinning process works. Uh, The commentators can't agree on the significance of the different ways of drinking water. But it doesn't really matter because the point is that 300 of them drink one way and 9,700 of them drink a different way. And God says, well, keep the 300, send everybody else home. And so, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lacked, I will save you. 
and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300. Now, friends, it's really, really important for us to be clear this morning that this test with the water is not some kind of aptitude test so that you know, Gideon can kind of select the Navy SEALs or the, the SAS or the Green Berets or, or whatever it is. Because if these 300 were superhero special forces types, it would totally undermine the point that God is making. Because the point that God is making is that I am going to save you in utter weakness. So these 300 are 300 terribly ordinary men who just happened to drink the wrong way. So don't let's be thinking Navy SEALs. Let's be thinking Dad's Army. That's kind of the picture here. And you can imagine some of the 300 saying afterwards to one another, well, you know, I really wish I'd drunk the other way. So I could have been one of the guys that goes home. And don't you think that these 300 must have turned to one another and said, you know, this is absolutely stupid. We're all going to die. Yes, in one sense, it's pathetic. No one in their right minds would give these 300 men any chance at all against the legions of the Midianites. It would be hard to find a more pathetic army than this. And that is the whole point. That is the point. God says, I'm going to save you in complete and total and utter weakness. And all the praise will go to the God who saves. Not to the 300, not to the leader, Gideon, and there will be no boasting. And that's how it's always been, and that's how it's always going to be. And more than a thousand years after these events, God's ultimate leader knew that he couldn't save himself. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, we read that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Because Jesus knew that he couldn't save himself. And so he cried in his weakness to God to save him from death. And Jesus chose, didn't he, for his core team, just 12 men. A group of complete and utter no-hopers. One turned traitor, one of them denied him three times. All of them deserted him when Jesus was arrested. None of them had natural, spiritual insight or charisma or leadership gifts. They weren't rich, they weren't educated, they weren't powerful because Jesus knew, as Gideon had to learn, that God will save through weakness. 
And you see it's still true today, isn't it? If you're a Christian this morning, when you came to faith in Christ, it wasn't because you were wise or perceptive or spiritual or insightful. It was because God reached down and he rescued you. And if you've made any progress at all in godliness, if you've grown in love and patience and forbearance and kindness, it's no credit to you or to me or to anybody else. It's because God has been at work in your life. If you pray, it's not because you're sensible. It's because God in his kindness has put prayer in your heart. And if you hope to endure to the end and be saved, your hope cannot possibly be in your own strength, but in his alone. If you've had any success in reaching other people with the gospel, you can't boast about that either. A couple of months ago, Gillian and I were at a ministry conference in London, and uh, we heard the story of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Later today you could look it up on Google, don't do it now. It's a marvellous story uh, about how as a young man uh, Spurgeon sort of stumbled into a rather run-down Methodist chapel somewhere in England. It happened to be snowing at the time and so the pastor, the normal minister of the church, couldn't get there and this absolutely dreadful preacher turned up. Um... And Spurgeon says, yeah, it's really important that preachers are properly trained and taught. All of you who are studying at George know that. But, uh, but this man, you see, this man who turned up hadn't been trained and he was absolutely terrible. But Charles Spurgeon, you see, was converted and he became one of the greatest preachers the world has ever seen and all the glory goes to God. All the glory goes to God. However you serve the Lord, you do it in weakness. If you try to bring Jesus into the conversation with your friends and family, you do it in weakness. And it may even be that God has to humble you and say to you, you've got too much strength. Sometimes he says that to us individually, Sometimes he says, you know, you're just beginning to think that you're quite good at this Christian business, but you've got too much strength, too much talent, too much giftedness, and I need to humble you before I can use you. Sometimes he says it to a local church. He says, you've got too many people. Not our problem, but he says it to some churches. You've got too many people, too much money, too many buildings. I'm going to humble you. Whatever it is, God says, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that you will understand that you cannot save yourself and all the praise goes to God. So will God rescue you? Yes, he will, but he will do it in weakness. And he will do it through a leader in weakness And he will do it in people, in our weakness. It's a wonderful truth, and it's one that Gideon had to learn in this very 
dramatic and rather frightening way. But now let's come back to the text and notice with me, secondly, the encouragement in weakness in verses 9 to 15. Now at the end of verse 8, it says, Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And that is almost, if you notice, if you've all got our eyes on the Bible, that is almost a word-for-word repeat of verse 1. Verse 1 says, The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley. Verse 8 says, Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. So, nothing has changed since verse 1 except that 99% of the army have gone home. So, humanly speaking, things are not looking great for Israel at this point, are they? And it's the night before the battle. And the night before a battle is always a frightening time. Uh, This year is the centenary, isn't it, of the end of World War I. There were more than 40 million casualties in World War I, making it one of the bloodiest conflicts in human history. Imagine what it would have been like the night before one of those battles. Just waiting, knowing that tomorrow people are going to be killed and you're thinking, I wonder, is it going to be me? It's a frightening moment, isn't it? So in verse 9, God says to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. And in verse 10, God says to Gideon, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. We're not sure quite why God wanted Gideon to take his servant with him, but there is just a hint in the text of Gideon's loneliness. So notice this, um, in verse 1, the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley, but in verse 8, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And it's just a hint of the loneliness of leadership. And God says to Gideon, go down to the camp, go down with your servant. And maybe the night before the battle, Gideon was longing for companionship and for fellowship. And certainly at a later stage in the Bible's story, another leader was longing for that, wasn't he? He said to his close friends, didn't he, in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me? God says to Gideon, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. They go down, not with a view to attack, but actually just to listen. And then in verse 12, there's another reminder of just how vast the enemy is. Verse 12, the Midianites, the Amalekites, And all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Interesting phrase. If you cast your mind back to the book of Genesis, uh, that was one of the images, wasn't it, 
that God used in the covenant with Abraham. God said to Abraham, your people are going to be like the sand on the seashore. And here, the Midianites and their camels are trampling over the promised land in huge numbers and by their huge numbers they're mocking the covenant. They look like an unbeatable enemy. But Gideon and his servant creep down to the very edge of the camp and they just happen to arrive in verse 13 as a man was telling his friend his dream. We don't know, but it might have been perhaps the changing of the guard or something in the middle of the night. And you can imagine the Midianite saying to his friend, I'm really sorry to have to wake you. Uh, Did you sleep well? And uh, his friend says, well, you know, actually I didn't. Uh, I had this totally weird dream. Did you? Tell me about it. Well, there was this loaf of bread. And it it rolled down the hill into our tent. And when it hit the tent, this little loaf of bread knocked the whole tent over. Isn't that weird? And his friend says, I know what that's all about. That loaf of bread is Gideon. And of course, there is a sense, isn't there, in which Gideon has rolled down the hill. But do you remember when we first met Gideon last week that he was threshing wheat? So almost from the very beginning of the story, we associate Gideon with bread. And here he is, he's rolled down the hill to that particular tent. And the other man says... God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Now we need to think about this. Obviously, God had given that man this rather strange dream. But more than that, had God given this man an uneasy conscience... Do you remember Rahab in the book of Joshua? You remember God broke through her pagan worldview so that she was able to see what God was doing in the world around her. And perhaps there's something like that here, that God has given this man a sense that there is a God. And you know, you find this, don't you, sometimes, with people who are very, very confident in their unbelief, very assertive in their anti-Christian convictions, you find actually, when you get to know them, they're not quite as confident as they seem. Is that right? And underneath, there's this kind of sense of discomfort. It's rather weird that there's a a sense of being accountable to the God they don't actually believe in. Maybe I'm not as safe as I thought. And one of the lessons in this second scene in the story is this. That if you are trying to live in God's world without God, you need to know what this dreamer understood, which is that you can't win. He woke up from his dream, his friend interpreted it for him, 
And then he said, you know, we can't win. We're setting ourselves against God and against God's champion and against God's people and we can't win. It was a very sobering moment for them. And if you're seeking to live in God's world like that, following in the footsteps of these Midianites against God and against his people, there is something in you that knows you can't win. You might seem to be winning. You may seem to be living comfortably in God's world without God. Things may seem to be going quite well for a while. After all, the number of people living like you are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But in the end, you will not win. Because just as in this little story, God has given the enemies of his people into the hands of his champion. So at the end of time, God has given all who will not turn from their sin and trust in Christ into the hands of his greater champion. You can't win. It's a strange irony, actually, in the story that what the Midianite says in verse 14 where he says God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands, that's pretty much what God has already said to Gideon in verse 9. I'm going to give it into your hands, go down to the camp. It's rather interesting though, when, when God says it to Gideon, by whatever means he did, Gideon can't quite believe it. But ironically, when he hears it from the lips of this anonymous Midianite, He does believe it. And then in verse 15, when Gideon hears the dream and the interpretation, he worshipped God. And in that moment, we are actually seeing Gideon at his very, very best. There he is, probably on his knees before God. And he worships. And worship is the response of faith, isn't it? The letter to the Hebrews describes Gideon as one of the heroes of faith. And now he is transformed. He was frightened before. But he comes back to the camp. And at the end of verse 15, he says to the men, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And the point is, he believes because he has worshipped. And I think there's something extremely profound here. Because if you and I pray and we cry out to God in the misery of this world caused by our own sin and by the sin of other people and we wonder if God is going to answer if the first part of the passage says he's going to answer through weakness the second part is that he will answer as we worship as we bow down as we trust his word as we believe that evil will not finally triumph. 
friends, our worship really, really matters. God answers our prayers as we worship him. So notice lastly then, the victory through weakness. Verses 16 to 25. We're not going to spend long on this. Uh, Just ten verses of battle in one dramatic hour of darkness and the decisive victory is won. In weakness, God's champion triumphs. But in verse 18, they cry for the Lord and for Gideon, his champion. And they cry in verse 20, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. There's actually no indication that they ever took their swords out, even if they had any, because all they actually do is blow their trumpets, shout the name of their covenant God and their spirit-filled leader, and they give a dazzling display of light. And in the darkness to the Midianites, it looks like an absolutely massive army. Uh, I believe it was standard practice in those days that you had one trumpet per division and uh, Gideon's men are blowing 300 trumpets. So the Midianites are thinking, well, there are 300 divisions out there in the darkness. And isn't it interesting that what happens next is that evil begins to destroy itself. Middle of verse 22. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. You know, there is something ultimately self-destructive about evil. And all the rest uh, from verse 22 onwards is really mopping up operations and there'll be more of that in next week's rather puzzling passage. But for the moment, for this week, for this morning, the point is this. God gives the Midianites into the hands of Gideon, his champion. He gives a decisive victory. And uh, it echoes an earlier story and it anticipates a later story. So in Isaiah chapter 10, you don't need to look it up now, but it's Isaiah 10.26 if you're taking notes. Isaiah puts what God does against Midian alongside what God did at the Exodus. And the point is that what happens here is an Exodus-like rescue. And for the later story, Hebrews says that all of these faithful people in Hebrews 11, men like Gideon, are commended for their faith, but they didn't actually receive what was promised. And Hebrews says that what had been promised was a greater story and a greater and a more perfect leader and something better. And then as we read the whole Bible, we begin to see that what was achieved here, listen to this, in an hour of darkness, in weakness, and in an astonishing and surprising victory, 
was actually foreshadowing what was achieved in darkness and weakness and in perfect faith by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as he bore the sins of the whole world. And Hebrews says, so by his death he broke the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And friends, the point is, it is a decisive victory and it has been won. So when you ask God to rescue you, and when I cry out to God to rescue me from my inner sinfulness and from the pressures and the misery of life in a dark and sinful world, and I pray for God to work in other people to rescue all of us from sin and sin's terrible consequences. Will God do that? Yes, he will. And this story is teaching us in seed and it's helping us to feel the wonder of this, that God will do it in complete weakness. So just as Gideon's army was utterly pathetic and hadn't the slightest chance by human logic of defeating the Midianites, so God will answer our prayers in weakness. He did it at the cross of Christ in utter weakness and he's been doing it ever since in every rescue of every Christian because each of those rescues is in the shadow of the cross. And in his kindness, he's not going to allow you or me to become boastful. And in his mercy, he will humble us so that we properly understand that all the praise goes to him. And he will save us as he saved Israel through Gideon as we worship. As we bow down in our hearts as we trust his words and bow down before the God who has already won the decisive victory for us at the cross. And friends, this story says to the complacent man, woman or girl or boy who thinks that they can live in God's world without God, you can't win. Just as this Midianite had a dream and realised by some strange means, that all the rules had changed. He realised that all the human logic of human strength and might and sheer weight of numbers and human boasting had been overturned. Somehow he realises that Gideon, this loaf of bread, is going to triumph. And in the same way we grasp that the Lord Jesus in all his innocent, sinless weakness, is the victor over evil. You can't win. Equally, to the fearful believer, this story says to us, you can't lose. You can't lose because Christ has won. You cry in your heart in the misery of this world. You cry to God. He will answer. He's already answered in Christ. 
And he answers in Christ today as his kingdom continues to grow. And he will answer when Christ returns and the grand story finally comes to an end. Fearful believer, you cannot lose. It's a sobering truth, I think, because it is in weakness. But it is a wonderful truth for each one of us. Let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Champion, has triumphed in weakness on the cross. We praise you that there he broke the power of sin and death and defeated the one who wields the power of death, that is the devil. And we praise and thank you for that decisive victory. And we thank you for the assurance that as we walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, we cannot lose. Keep us trusting. Keep us worshipping. Keep us bowing down before you. And we ask it in Jesus' name.